You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. Misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the Mad Ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your not-at-all-a-scientist host, Cam Hartless, and with me, as always, is your more-of-a-scientist-than-Cam hostess, Miss Jessica no. Green. No. I, I, think, I think you are. You, you took science classes in college well beyond what I did. So oh, that probably make, makes me less of a scientist than you, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe, but Maybe. I, I, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're married to a scientist, so I think you have more yeah. science in your life than I do. It's like being a doctor's wife. You're like half a doctor? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, so uh, before we get going today, I do want to rem- I, I want to remind you that we do have some sponsors, uh, one being some great coffee, uh, run your mouth coffee, rymcoffee.com. Also, get, check this out. I have started making mugs and I will be showing you where to get <gasps> mugs from our show very soon to drink this coffee. I've been asking for mugs forever. <laughs> I'm so excited. But if you go to rymcoffee.com, you can try out their bourbon barrel aged coffee, which is so good. Smells like heaven, tastes even better. rymcoffee.com, 10% off if you use the code the mad ones. Um, also, if you like um, dried meats, righteousfelon.com, they have some great beef jerky. You need to check it out. They have so many different flavors and they're so good. Uh, that's righteousfelon.com. Promo code for that is mad ones, no the. Um, but before we get going, one, I wanted to say thank you. We have two new patrons this week, Jonathan and Raymond, who are now helping us out. And also, Ryan jumped on in a not a, an official patron way, but still to help us keep things going. And, and he paid for some very important things that we need to keep going. So I want to say thank you. If you want to join them and get our RSS feed with all of the past episodes, patreon.com slash the mad ones. But we need to move on to the show. Because you didn't come here just for me to mention, you know, meet and where to find us. Uh, but <laughs> I'm excited about this this episode because I I found this this man on TikTok. You know, I'm on TikTok because I'm hip. But I came across one of his one of his TikToks that really stuck out to me, and I immediately I don't even I think I found him on his university's website and sent him an email. Like I I, I didn't even usually I'm like trying to find people on Twitter, and I was like. Got to find the official the, the official place to go. Uh, but joining us tonight is a PhD and a professor of nuclear engineering at North Carolina State University. He's a TikTok extraordinaire. He's a man of God in the world of science and a very apparently kind man, uh, Dr. Robert Hayes. How are you doing? Okay, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> doing all right. Uh, so I, I figure probably where we start the episode is... Um, with nuclear power and that because I think the science is going to lead just because as soon as I tweeted out that you were going to be on the show there were arguments in the comments about nuclear power (laughs) oh wow 
which I thought was wild because I, 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 you know, I haven't, I'm like I said, I'm not a scientist, but every time I've read into nuclear power and what people talk about and all the, the safeguards they use and the mitigation strategies and stuff like that, every time, and when I hear your TikTok, I'm like, this sounds like the safest option. This sounds like the, the, the best way to move forward, at least in the way of like mass electrical um, grids and things like that. I mean, I would love to have a little nuclear reactor in my backyard instead of having to get solar solar panels. But still, um, people are scared of radiation. I don't know it's, if it's because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if it's because of Chernobyl or Fukushima, or I, I hope I'm saying that right, um, or any of the other, um, or Hollywood. But I, I, I feel like that's something that needs to be talked about more because almost every person that I've known personally, when they've someone's mentioned nuclear, they've automatically went into fear mode. Is that something that you've witnessed a lot uh, being a doctor of nuclear engineering? I do from the pub general public, but not from uh, uh, the academic circles of uh, the, the, the STEM fields uh, as a almost a blanket statement. The, those that are in the STEM fields recognize the requisite need of nuclear energy for our electrical needs. The International Panel of Climate Change even called it out, said we're not going to do it without nuclear. Hmm. Yeah. What, what do you think causes sort of people to have that automatic fear reaction toward nuclear that, I mean, really that's on like the public level. Um, and do you think there's anything we could do about that? So, my expectation <clears throat> from my experience is that it's this great unknown. So nuclear engineering is probably one of the most difficult disciplines because we still have to deal with mechanical engineering and civil engineering, but then we also have to, so it's not just juggling those valence electrons in when we control nature, it's also the nucleons. And so that adds a whole new aspect to the design and that, has uh, such a large amount of unknown with it that when mm -hmm. you can couple that with danger, it, our natural response is to, if we don't understand something, uh, is to often to fear it if there's any possibility of danger. And our default then is to assume the worst. So if I don't understand something and there's some danger there, my, my, my knee-jerk reaction is to assume that it's as bad as it can be. That way I can mitigate that. So if it's as bad as it can be, I'm going to take a reaction. It's going to protect me if that occurs. If the worst right. that could possibly happen occurs, I'm going to protect myself because I don't know how bad it can be. So I'm going to prepare for the worst. And so that's, that's, that's a, I, I believe, a normal and natural response to the unknown. Mm -hmm. And nuclear, for most people, falls square in the, in the heart of the unknown. Oh, yeah. Well, when people bring up like Chernobyl uh, or um, Fukushima, Ex explicitly what is typically your response to that because you know i've i've heard the stories of fukushima and i i always i read the news and hear stories through um the lens of i i don't trust the press up front let to put it kindly um <laughs> and so when I hear a lot of these stories and I hear things that are, you know, really pushed, I go, how true is this? So obviously Chernobyl was awful. Um, but like take Fukushima. Um, I was going through your TikTok and you made some really interesting points because everyone talks yeah. about how deadly it was and how it was deadly for nine years. And 
people had to move. And I was wondering when it came to Fukushima, how much of what we've heard is true and how much of what we've heard is just fear or fear mongering. So unless you've actually gone to uh, the, the scientific literature, it's probably all fear mongering. That's, okay. that's generally all that I see in social circles. So to put it in context, um, after Fukushima, the United Nations put together an expert panel to assess the health consequences. And in the, in the same vein, the World Health Organization put together an expert group of people to assess it. And then the, the review papers came out, uh, research papers came out, and they all said the same thing. Nobody has, has challenged this uh, in any of the scientific literature and that all of that radioactivity was insufficient to produce a statistically significant increase in any radiogenic effects to the Japanese public. There just wasn't enough. It was the, the, the containment was designed to handle a meltdown. Okay. And so uh, there was radioactivity that was released, but let me put that in context. The radioactivity that was released was dealt with in an extremely conservative way. It's the same thing here in the United States. In the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency will recommend evacuation anywhere between one and five rem per year to the public. So if you have radioactivity in the environment that's between one and, and five rem per year, they're gonna suggest you, you move. Now the average dose to the United States citizen is just under one rem per year. About half of that is natural background and the other half is medical. You can get about one rem if you had a CT scan to the hip or to the pelvis. If you had a positron emission tomography scan, that's about two rem. Uh, and if you're getting those doses per year from radioactivity, up to five rem and the EPA will say evacuate. So these are not deadly doses. These are doses that if you get a lot of them in sequence, then you can have, then you start to approach where you'll get a statistically significant increase where you can measure it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so because we're conservative doesn't mean that it's deadly and scary. In fact, the only people literally that died from the Fukushima event, uh, if you go and look at the literature, it was those that panicked in the evacuation. So it was fear that killed people. It wasn't the radio radioactivity. It wasn't the radiation. The dose was too small. It was too close to background, right? Everything's radioactive, always has been, always will be. Uh, and half, so we actually get about 600 millirem per year uh, on average. Half of that is just natural radioactivity from the earth. That's mm -hmm. the same radioactivity that gives rise to, mostly that's where geothermal energy comes from, is the radioactive decay of uranium and thorium and potassium in the earth. And that's that same material that we pull out of the earth and, and fission it to, to make it break down much faster and concentrate it so that we can get the heat, get the energy out of it, rather than letting it go slowly over billions of years. And so, yes, uh, it was a big mess, right? We had three out of four nuclear reactor core meltdown, huge, mm -hmm. right? And there was a release because of the, uh, the, those explosions in the spent fuel pool. Uh, but that's not the, where the core, the core would, if the, it's the core that was the big, that would have been the big chunk. And that's would have been what would have happened at Chernobyl. But the core of all of them were contained because we had a containment. That's the way the Western reactors were designed back in the seventies, right. the ones we still have. And so, uh, all of that radioactivity from the core stayed there. And so we did not have a Chernobyl. What we had was a Fukushima and the, the relocation guidance is still in that same vein is if you're getting these doses that are large compared to background two, three, four times larger than background, then they can make that guidance. Even though literally you can go to places on the earth where the background is even twice that there's a place in Iran, Ramsar Iran, where the background dose rate is around 
10 rem per year. Uh, but the population is too small to really say if uh, if the, the uh, if there's any kind of statistically significant changes in cancer rates uh, because it, you need a large number. Uh, what we're talking about around 10 rem is on the order of about a half a percent increase in the natural incidence, which is around 40%. Right. So it's a half a percent change is just too small to see unless you got a huge population that's getting that same dose because just such a small change and Basically, it's dominated by other factors like stress or health or genetics or comorbidities. Those really are the dominant factor when you get down to those levels of uh, cancer incidence. And so if there is a, a radiological effect from Fukushima, it's too small to see. It's okay. just so small. It's in the noise. It's, uh, and so, yeah, it, it was a big deal in terms of money, in terms of making people move. But the design of these Western reactors was to do exactly that so that although people would evacuate like we have here in the United States, they wouldn't have any medical effects from the radiation unless it was from the fear. And it's the same thing that happened with Three Mile Island. It, the dose was comparable to background. It was a fraction of background of, of your annual background, a small fraction of your annual background, but it terrified people. And that sure. was really the only measurable medical effect was from fear. And the same with Fukushima. In fact, here's, a, here's an interesting one. If you look at the literature, uh, Chernobyl, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's killed on the order of around a thousand people. There are about 35 people that died outright from acute radiation syndrome. But then you look at the follow on leukemias and thyroid cancers. There were a lot of other people that you can say there was a statistically significant increase. And it's clear on the order of about a thousand people, uh, were lost as a result of that. Mm -hmm. However, the suicide rate has now outpaced that. And that's from mm -hmm. this radiophobia, the fear is so bad that if you have this low level radiation, you just think you're doomed. It's like every health problem you have is from, from Chernobyl. And every time you have a problem, it just confirms this belief that you have no hope. Every time something bad happens, it's just proof that you're, you're cursed. And so, so the suicide rate has gone up. Yeah. When you see these series um, that have recently come out, like the um, multi-night uh, series that they had for Chernobyl, the um, dramatization of it, you saw these images of people who basically like within a couple of hours and a couple of days, their skin is like melting off of their bodies. You talk about, you know, we're evacuating people at five, the incidence of maybe half a percent of cancer being rates of cancer being raised is at 10. What level at are we talking about where you do actually are having like skin melting? Like, uh, yeah, you're talking about 10, like on the order of around 10,000 rem. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's like going up and trying to trying to hug the core or something like that. Right. <laughs> or maybe yeah. it's a fuel and, and these were the people who were like digging um, in the like the the burning fire that was going on around Chernobyl. These are guys who were like directly right up against the building that who were experiencing things. Right. Right. So when we're talking about five, and then we're evacuating people at five. So this is not even something that would affect people and we're already going to move them out of the area just in case it's a conservative measure the point is yeah. it's a similar kind of a criteria for free releasing uh uh, uh or, or get granting a license say to a, a a hospital the idea is that if you're going to be giving people injecting them with radioactivity and then releasing them that you want to do that in such a way that it's going to give dose to other people uh, a maximum dose that's on some fraction of background so if you do this for multiple vectors, then you're shipping nuclear waste, right? That can't mm -hmm. give any more than credibly any more than a fraction of background. 
if you're doing radiography, uh, industrial radiography for looking at the structure of bridges, looking for cracks, if you're gonna be doing that, any kind of dose that would come from that would only give the members of the public a fraction of background. So you got these, that's where a license comes from. It means that you're not gonna be able to do anything that's gonna, that's gonna have any measurable effect, even if it's compounded many, 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 many times over. Mm -hmm. Does that, and that, that means that you can do it without control. That's the, that's the criteria. And so the argument is that it, you possibly could have multiple things like this happening all together and then they compounded together would give you a measurable effect. And that's the philosophy. So it's ultra conservative. Mm. That, that, uh, and, and that was largely to, uh, to assuage the fears of people that thought, well, there's danger here. We, yeah. and, and so nuclear would say, well, we will mitigate this to extreme amounts. Mm -hmm. Even though we do mitigate it to extreme amounts, we can do that at the price that we have today. It's often associated, well, if you're going to these extreme measures, it must be extremely dangerous. And it's really just a matter of, well, we can design these things to be freakishly safe, uh, but it's going to cost. It doesn't come free to make these things that safe. It, there's, there's a certain amount of research and technology and, and, and uh, infrastructure money that you're going to have to invest to give it that, right? It's kind of like if, if I wanted to make a car that could roll down a cliff and you walk away, that's not going to be a cheap car, right? right? Yeah. Can we you design one. Can you just can you just give a a broad layman's overview of what happens when something like that does go wrong? What are the fail safes? These freakishly safe uh, freakishly safe fail safes that occur when a problem like Fukushima does happen. So what we do in the nuclear industry is something we call defense in depth, and what that means is that you look at all possible pathways of sequences of events that can give rise to a meltdown. Okay. And so any one of those that might have to happen in any kind of a tree fashion, each one of those is going to have a control to prevent it. And so you would need to have to walk all of these paths and all of these controls to fail in order to eventually make it to the meltdown. And so it's considered defense in depth. And, mul mul and if any of these have multiple paths, you're going to have multiple controls to prevent that. And then last but not least, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is not going to, going to pro provide you a license unless you can prove if even if all of those fail and for some reason all of those fail and you still have a meltdown you still cannot challenge that 10 rem at the fence mm -hmm. uh, or 25 rem at the fence whatever it is for whichever license you have and that's if you're sitting there right at the fence and you sit there and you get the whole brunt of it then that's the maximum dose that you would get and that's what the containment does and so the idea is that you have multiple layers of safety that's present, both engineered controls based on shielding and structure and so forth. You have active controls based on instrumentation and so forth. And then you have administrative controls, training, procedures, uh, uh, postings, and those kinds of things to make sure that uh, all of those different things that could occur that would, would contribute to having a meltdown are being prevented. Right. So with Fukushima, the idea um, just that I've gotten from the press is that an earthquake was bad enough to kind of um, subvert these fail-safe systems. Mm -hmm. But um, the impression that I got from uh, looking at your TikTok was that these systems actually worked the way that they were supposed to. Um, as a result, that no one was actually injured, um, more so than the, the fear of the radiation uh, effects seemed to have caused people harm but the radiation itself didn't cause harm. So um, can you tell me where the reality on that falls? Sure, so what, what happened was that it operated as it was designed to operate. 
-hmm. The problem is that the, the design did not incorporate a 14 meter wave, it incorporated a 12 meter wave. And then that was okay. compounded because uh, you know that was basically supposed to be the, the, the one in 10,000 year wave height. Uh, you get some prediction and they ended up having one that was substantially higher. And then that was compounded by uh, uh, what's called a, uh, a single point failure by having the diesel motors in the basement. So those were flooded and they didn't have the diesel motors. So in, in, in essence, nature just by-stepped that entire defense in depth by having this 14 meter wave when uh, they were, the, the, the design was to have a 12 meter height uh, a wall, which is what they had. And then that was then challenged and, and uh, breached. And mm -hmm. as a result, the, that final design feature, the containment is what kept all of the radioactivity from the core contained. And so, yes, that exactly is what happened. They, they, they went through that entire process, all that defense in depth went out the window because nature threw this left hook. And yeah. so, but because that containment was there, the radioactivity from the core stayed in there and all that you got was what was over there in the fuel pool. So uh, as a result, the radioactivity that was released uh, was at the levels that were comparable to background. Okay. Not substantial. So, so you mentioned that a lot of the deaths surrounding Fukushima had to do with fear. And I'm just curious because a lot of times with these situations, um, a lot of the death toll has to do with the, um, the management of an evacuation or the way that they talk about it. Would you say that in this situation, the people who died or lost their houses um, that these were situations that stemmed from poor response or is it just purely fear in your opinion? It was kind of both. So uh, let's say that you had a large dose. Let's say it was a hundred gram. And so that with that hundred gram, if you got that hundred gram, then you have a 5% probability of uh, an 5% inc increase in your probability of cancer. Right? So that's a massive mm -hmm. dose. That's an atomic bomb level dose, but that would have been over a year. Right? And so if, if you were to take uh, something on the order of say a week to do it, then you're only getting a small fraction of that, right? And so now it's much more, and so, so now you're not gonna get any measurable effects again because you took a week, right? Instead of trying to get out as soon as possible, if you just slowly get out, you're still gonna be fine. Right. Because that, that's averaged over a year that, that we're talking about. And what, what they had at Fukushima was much less and then on top of that, even if you had that 5% increase, it's going to take about 10 or 20 years before you're going to see any effects. That's from cancer. It still takes a, a, a there's a latency period where nothing's going to happen until 10 or 20 years later. And then you'll start to see those solid tumors form, right? Okay. And so the, 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 a, a large fraction of the people that died were people that couldn't evacuate themselves. They were in hospitals and nursing homes, and there was no reason to rush them out. Uh, especially if they didn't have a life expectancy that was more than 10 or 20 years. Mm. Does that make sense? It makes yeah. no sense yeah. at all. Yeah. And to, to compound the fact that the levels were sufficiently low that you could have had a leisurely withdrawal and still had that fraction of background contributed due to the fallout. There was no reason to panic. There was no reason for everybody to, 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 to get the patients out and to take them out of a hospital and take them and try to provide for them when you're not in a hospital setting, right? A nurse probably can't handle more than six patients in, in at a time, right? And now, and that's in the hospital, right? And now you tell that nurse to get them out of the hospital and take them somewhere else and now take care of them. You know, what is she gonna do? What is he gonna do? Yeah. Uh, 
but if you had thought it through and said, all right, well, where am I going to move them? All right, we're going to have to move them three hours away. All right, well, this is going to require a number of ambulances to start cycling. It's going to take a week. Okay, fine. That should have taken a week, but it didn't, right? It was a, it, it, it hurt a lot of people because everybody was afraid. They said, oh, it's time to leave. Then that, that fear kicks in. I don't know how bad it is. So I'm going to pretend like it's as bad as it could possibly be. So I'm going to protect myself. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, I mean, obviously people bring up the death toll, um, obviously not Fukushima, but Chernobyl. Um, mm -hmm. And when that comes up, uh, I, I don't know any of the numbers, but I have to wonder, because it seems like our government, for one, is not super into nuclear. They're far more interested in solar, wind, hydro, yeah. stuff like that. Um, but how... If, have you looked at the death tolls comparing those to the death toll even at Chernobyl? Like how does how do those compare or contrast? Right. So this is going to surprise you. The worst of those in terms of death toll per gigawatt hour historically is going to be hydro. Mm -hmm. There have been there was one in China, I think it was in 1975, where a hydroelectric dam burst. And it took out villages uh, uh, anywhere between. Uh, so China claimed it was only tens of thousands, but the the, the international community seems to think it's above a hundred thousand people died from that one hydroelectric dam. Right, dam breaks, the water goes down, everybody downstream, and so that's happened in a number of cases where where dams have breached. And so the the deaths per gigawatt hour for uh, hydro are huge uh, from coal and oil and natural gas. You also get large numbers, but you also have a lot of industrial accidents in there. Now, when you start to compare it with wind and solar, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, the, 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 I actually did do uh, a recent analysis. I had it in a paper that I got submitted for publication, uh, looking at a wind farm in, in Greece, uh, where you look at the number of accidental deaths. And there you're basically just looking at people that fall off of the turbine. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is that they do have industrial accidents there uh in that industry but they have such a small energy density so even a small death rate if you look at the number of deaths per gigawatt hour if your gigawatt hour is small that ratio becomes big does that make sense yeah could you do me a favor because i'm i'm sure not everyone will know what gigawatt hour means mm. could i don't you, could you could you could you briefly define that for us do you know what a kilowatt hour is no? <laughs> i don't I'm, I'm more of a philosophy guy. <laughs> the, the, the meter on the outside of your house, it's going to measure in kilowatt hours how much power you used. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's what that little meter is going to read. Now, a gigawatt hour is like a million times bigger, right? And that's the kind of power that a generating station will be able to put out. So you can supply millions of homes. Right. That makes sense? Okay. Yes. I gotcha. Okay. Yes. So that's a generating station is going to be something on the order of a gigawatt. You can do a fraction of a gigawatt or multiple gigawatts, but that's kind of the, the, the convenient unit for electrical generation, okay. these, these gigawatt hours. And so if you look at the number of d accidental deaths per gigawatt hour from the different power sources, nuclear is one of the lowest. It's comparable to all of the others. And, and for the year 2018, if you only look at the US nuclear, what was interesting is if you look at the rate from that one wind farm in Greece versus uh, the number of deaths per gigawatt hour, in 2018, there were zero deaths in all of the nuclear industry people that, that died on the job from accidents. And so the number that would have been required per gigawatt hour to match what you had from that wind farm would have been in the thousands. Mm. And, you know, if we'd had thousands of accidental deaths at nuclear power plants, that would have been huge. 
But right. if you have a similar ratio in wind, you know, that's it's an industrial accident. So it's not a big deal because we understand wind. But with nuclear, it's got to be much better. I'm told there are components to like batteries and things like that that are used for solar panels that are have to be like rare earth elements that are mined. And a lot of people are in terrible conditions in these mines. Are those deaths and the people in living in those conditions figured into the death per kilowatt hour ratio? So you can try to estimate that. The problem is, is that, for example, the Uyghurs in China are doing this. And yeah. uh, to be able to get accurate numbers from the People's Republic of China is- China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, there are there have been people that have tried to estimate that yeah. um and they're all when you compare that with nuclear you've got to ask yourself uh one of the there, there are two ways of looking at it with nuclear remember i said that there's this uh once you're below some threshold it's a detection limit so if there are increases they're too small to see everything else is bigger at that level mm -hmm. right uh you, your your general health uh, comorbidities that's going to dominate the probability of you getting cancer but if you mm -hmm. think that there still is some that are down there and you add those in then it's still comparable in terms of deaths per gigawatt hour. It's still comparable to uh, the more traditional renewables. So the death rate is just extremely small per gigawatt hour. So if you want a gigawatt hour and you're wondering and you want a small number of deaths per gigawatt hour, nuclear definitely is the way to go in terms of giving you baseload because wind and solar don't give you baseload, right? They only operate when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. And we don't right now have dispatchable storage so that they can store during the day to give you power during night or when the wind isn't blowing. Right, right. Um, there are, of course, elements that we use in nuclear power. Um, and man, I am throwing some <laughs> guesses out here, but like uranium and things like that that we use for these processes. Are, there, are these materials abundant enough for us to uh, use them for this purpose? So uh, geothermal energy is actually a form of nuclear energy. Almost all energy is a, is a converted form of nuclear energy of some sort. Uh, and the reason why is because the earth under your feet right now has about three parts per million of uranium and about 10 parts per million thorium. And so there are places where it's concentrated and you can mine it okay. efficiently. Uh, the latest tech that's coming out is far more exciting. Uh, right now, just from natural erosion off of the mountains, the amount of uranium that's being dumped into the ocean is about sufficient for about nine times the annual electrical needs of the United States. It's just being dumped in the ocean, right? Wow. That's because these are large rivers and they're dumping large volumes of water out there. And so we do have technology that would allow these fronds, if you spray them with a resin, this resin will attract the uranium from the ocean to it and you can extract it at levels that are comparable. Uh, the latest results that came out of the national laboratory showed it was about three times the cost of traditional mining and milling mm -hmm. to use these, these passive ocean fronds that would just wave in the water and, and absorb the material. But a, another paper recently came out where they claimed that they had actually got this to become cost effective or cost competitive with modern mining and milling. Um, that's just the one paper, whether that can be scaled up to an industrial process or be repeated remains to be seen. But it, it goes without saying that if you do research, it'll get to that point. And even if you stick with traditional mining and milling, I believe if we continue to do research, we'll just make it that much more sustainable, have a smaller footprint, have less waste. And the biggest issue really is that we don't recycle. Yeah. So right now, uh, about 95% of the uranium in the fuel is just thrown away. And in making the fuel, 
we have a much larger volume of depleted uranium that's just thrown away. And if we started to recycle, we could use all of that. And then on top of that, if we were to do that and start recycling properly, then we don't have to take the plutonium and put them in a geological repository. The plutonium has half-life that's tens of thousands of years. The fission products are dominated by cesium and strontium, which have a half-life of 30 years. And so the volume of a geological repository that's needed would just be so much smaller. It would just be such a small footprint that it just simply requires that we recycle. But we're too tepid to do that because our political instability historically has not been sufficient to allow investors to say, oh, they're not going to change the regulations on me and make this uh, uh, no longer cost competitive, right? Because that's what mm -hmm. happened in the Carter administration. Uh, uh, after uh, Gerald Ford put a temporary ban, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter put a full ban. And even though Ronald Reagan lifted it, right, who's going to invest, right? Those, those facilities are like $10 billion, yeah. right? Why are you going to invest in something that the politicians might say, oh, we're going to put a, a tax on you that's 10 times what it was before. And now you're out of business, right? You, if you don't have political stability, you can't have investment. Nobody's going to invest there. It just doesn't So me, as kind of like the layman voter, when I hear about the waste products from nuclear energy, I think very much of like the Simpsons with a big jar or a big barrel full of glowing material that they seal up and then they cart down and you know hide under the earth somewhere, which of course is very, very dangerous material and you don't want it anywhere near you. Can you maybe help me or disabuse me of this image if that's the case? And because this is, I think, when politicians are talking to people about this kind of thing, what they have in their heads. So the spent fuel goes into uh, transportation storage containers. And these are large, like reinforced concrete monoliths. And the it's it we, we know how to shield this stuff. We can shield it so that even though it's spent fuel bundles that are in there, we can shield it so that the outside radiation rate is comparable to naturally occurring radioactive material. Okay. It's, it, we can shield it down even lower if we wanted to. Uh, the point is, is that once you've got a fence, that fence, it's got to be a fraction of natural background on the dose rate that's there. And then these things have rigorous testing. They've got to be they've got to be dropped onto a onto an impenetrable spike in their weakest point. And then they've got to be dropped on an edge on their weakest point. And then they've got to be in like a 1500 degrees Fahrenheit fire for 30 minutes. And then they got to be submerged underwater uh, for like uh, another half hour. All that in sequence, and it can't leak. Mm. And okay. that's what every one of those has to be able to do in order for you to be able to put the spent fuel in it. And that's only so that we can then move it into a geological repository. So the green goo is kind of like Spider-Man and the Hulk. It's it makes for good entertainment. <laughs> it's effective. Speak, at that. Well, and, and, and like we, we kind of mentioned the Chernobyl miniseries, um, but I was curious because I when I was going through your TikTok and other things, um, there seems to be a um, a disconnect when it comes to industrial accidents and what happened at Chern Chernobyl or what happened at F Fukushima or whatever. Um, and so I, I, one of the things that you mentioned that I, I looked up very briefly was what happened in Bhopal, India, mm. the gas leak. How is it that, I mean, obviously that's viewed as a tragedy, but how, how is it that a thousand people dying from effects from Chernobyl are somehow worse than that. Could you possibly give us a little background on Bhopal and- Yeah, uh, the, the, the hydrogen cyanide leak from Bhopal, India killed about 16,000 people. Oh my 
uh, that was an industrial accident. Uh, so it's kind of like the, uh, the, the hydroelectric dams when they break, those are considered industrial. Uh, or for example, maybe a, a, a better analogy is the, the tsunami at Fukushima, right? That killed 30,000 people, right? And where's the outcry for the 30,000 people that died? Well, that's a natural disaster. And, you know, it's a statistic at that point. Uh, and the same with Bhopal, India, right? It's a horrible statistic uh, of, a, of an industrial disaster that occurred, but it's something that we understand, right? They were processing uh, this cyanide-based material that when it leaked, it killed a lot of people. Cyanide is poison. And as horrific as that is, it's something that you can understand fairly easy. Maybe like uh, DDT or PCBs or something like that. They're easier to understand. But Fukushima uh, or any uh, radiological event, if you don't have an appreciation for the levels and their consequences, uh, then that default is going to be, you know, I'm going to assume the worst. That way, no matter what happens, I'm safe. Okay. Because I remember you mentioning it and I was like, this seems a lot where I mean, Chernobyl is obviously horrible to watch. And there's the I don't remember what the elephant's foot is, but I've seen a picture of it and they make it seem like the most horrifying thing. And so I, I understand there's also optics on this, you know, between cyanide and, um, yeah. you know, your skin essentially at least played out as it melting off. Um, and so I, I, I get that. But it, it seems to me that these are very similar um, accidents. These are both industrial accidents. And it's, it, it, seems all, it seems like the propagandist's um, best weapon is to, to draw a line between those and make you know, Chernobyl look worse than what happened at the hydro um, dam in China or the, the, the Bhopal. The, the gas leak there. It mm -hmm. does seem like there's an unfair... And, it, and I think that what you notice is if you look at the history of America and how we've pushed different technologies, how we've pushed um, energy and all of these things, it seems like Russia and China are doing more in the way of nuclear than, than we are, which is they are so strange because it seems like America would want to be because, I mean, this is something that can make money, right? This is something we could sell. I mean, the recycled um, uranium or fuel cells that we put in silos forever, isn't that something that could be used to, to make money in some way? Like, why is it that this is something, I mean, you said uh, political instability, but beyond that, why do you think that political instability, especially with, you know, the Carter, I don't know if Clinton did anything, but it does seem like it's a, ping pong match, partisan ping pong match. Why do you think that America isn't pushing for it? So in terms of the recycling, we actually did have a facility that was being built at Savannah River called the MOX facility, mixed oxide, that would have demonstrated an industrial scale capability to start recycling. Um, because after that happened, I mean, in order to build anything, you're going to need an investor, right? You need somebody to put yeah. up the capital. Somebody's going to have to come up, come up with the money. You're going to have to take out a loan and somebody's going to have to loan that money to you, right? And whose name is going to be on the line? What collateral is going to be on the line? Usually that comes from an investor. And to get somebody that's going to invest $10 billion, they're going to need to have confidence that they're going to get a return. Yeah. Elon's and, got to make his money. Right. And so 
because it was recognized that our politicians did this, this seesaw thing on a given technology and said, we are going to stop this technology uh, by passing some bills. Then the question comes out, how do you know that's not going to happen again? Right. right. That's a lot of money. That but why do you make. think that they're so against it? So, so the, the reason why Carter did it was because he was convinced uh, and at the time, uh, the United States was leading in pretty much everything, including nuclear technology. And he believed that if the United States quit leading in recycling spent nuclear fuel, then mm -hmm. everybody else would stop, that they needed us to lead in order for them to do anything. And what ended up happening was everybody else said, sorry, the genie's out of the bottle. We already know how to do it. It's like you didn't keep it a secret and we want to recycle. So, okay, bye. <laughs> We're going to go recycle. You go do what you're going to do and, you know will be us over here. And so the other uh, uh, developed nations all continued to do recycling. Uh, and as a result, that's why the politicians that saw the benefits of nuclear wanted to promote the MOX facility. That way we could bring civilian recycling back, um, but Congress ended up killing it. And whether we're ever gonna do anything again in the future remains to be seen. Um, there is some hope for the small modular reactors, the molten salt reactors, the uh, liquid metal fast reactors. There's a number of different uh, modern tech reactor concepts that are being being pitched that there is hope for. Um, some of them do require uh, on-site small uh, uh, radiochemical processes. If you're doing thorium, for example, you're going to have to do some kind of similar radiochemistry comparable to recycling. Uh, that's a, a, a chemistry process. And you would have to do that. And the technology is definitely there, but whether it's actually going to come to fruition remains to be seen. Uh, one of our listeners asked if there are any environmental impacts to creating plutonium. So absolutely. Um, there's this uh, famous quote from Ralph Nader that plutonium is the most toxic uh, element on the planet, uh, which guy's not a nuclear engineer, so he doesn't really know, but, um, uh, turns out that radium is comparable, natural radium, mm. because it's got a bunch of uh, uh, decay products that all have alpha and beta emitters. And so if you concentrate radium, you have a similar issue on your hands in terms of the radiotoxicity of the material. Mm -hmm. And all that that means is that, yes, the earth is radioactive, always has been, always will be. And if you take certain parts of it and concentrate it, you can make that dangerous. If you, if you were to do that. And the same applies with radium and it's comparable to what would happen if you concentrated plutonium. Now, I have heard other people say the solution to pollution is dilution. The idea being, well, you know, the radioactivity came to the earth, came from the earth. If we return it to the earth, it's fine. Um, especially if we dilute it and then it's just a small fraction of background again. Uh, as I consider myself an environmentalist, that's the way I was raised. Um, the problem with that is the potential for abuse that if you allow people to do that, then, you know, it's kind of like, all right, where do, where do you draw the line at that point, right? right. Uh, and it just makes sense. If it's concentrated, it's easy to control. It's mm -hmm. really easy to control if it's concentrated. If you dilute it, then it's a lot harder to, con to control. And so you keep it concentrated and then you put it deep in the ground where it simply has, uh, uh, the, the likelihood of that coming out is outweighed by whatever it would that caught would cause it to come out. Uh, for example, the, the waste isolation pilot plant is a good example. Uh, it's about a mile thick of water evaporites. About the bottom half mile is calcium sulfate. And the top uh, half a mile is sodium chloride. So you put it right there towards the bottom of the sodium chloride, right? And what would it take to get that out naturally? If something natural can dig that up, 
you're not worried about that. You're worried about what's digging it up. <laughs> right. Fair that's, enough. That's just, and so the geologists tell us that is the most stable formation you can have. The National Academy of Sciences have known this uh, for well over 50 years, that if you put something there geologically, it's as stable as, as you could ever imagine or hope for geological stability to be. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I love that breath of, I know, I know you want to say something. Um, yeah, no, ahead. I, one of the things that I wanted to focus on somewhat in this, um, in this episode, because uh, all of this is great information. I'm very happy we talked to you because I just learned way more than I ever had on nuclear before in my life. And so one of the things I wanted to focus on was kind of the reason why uh, your TikTok interested me in the first place um, and where you came from, your history. Um, because it, as I looked through your TikTok earlier today, it actually aligned so much with things that we've talked about previously and the way I feel about things and the way things I've experienced I want to talk about that. Um, so I would, I, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, I already know the answer because I asked you before, but I, I you know, uh, Jessica's husband works in science and I'm curious, you know, how did you get to nuclear uh, engineering? Like, where did you, how did you go from, wh where'd you start and how did you get there uh, is very interesting to me because I, like I've said, I'm more of a philosophical creative type. And so like, I, I hate math. And so anything in that, in that area, I'm like, I don't, I don't want it. So how did you get there? Well, I love math. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've actually told my students in, in my opinion, when God spoke the universe into existence, the language was calculus and statistics because that what, that's what my algebra teacher told me. And I was like, he must not want to talk to me, man. <laughs> quantum mechanics and cosmology it's everything it explains all of physical nature as far as we know you just need calculus and statistics and it's like boom everything uh so i've always I, i've always loved it um and so uh I, I ended up doing an undergraduate in math and physics by the time i graduated i started a family so i went looking for a job and there's not too many decent jobs if you've only got a bs in physics or math or both so I figured, well, I'll get a graduate degree. So then I went back and got a master's degree in physics and not much had changed. <laughs> and I realized the jobs weren't uh, in physics or you know general sciences, you had to go into engineering, right? And so uh, I'd had, by, by now I'd had multiple children. It's like, I'm gonna have to make a lot more money to support this, these kids that, that, I know that, that we're making. And kids so I figured, well, yeah. And, and what it was is it was, if I'm going to go into engineering, it's got to be the coolest form of engineering that there is. I can't just go do, you know, civil or mechanical. I've got to do something amazingly awesome. I was like, oh, look, right. nuclear. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, all right, let's do nuclear. And, and I've been all in since. Awesome. Um, and so, like I mentioned, the, the TikTok that interested me was you were talking about nuclear science and nuclear engineering and you were walking around your house and as you can see in the video behind you there's a wall back there that has some crosses on it yeah and like someone it. one of those internet atheists that's very angry that you know jessica used to be was like hey Once how could you be time. a man <laughs> how could you be a man of science and have crosses on your wall and you you explained that and i thought it was a fantastic explanation and so I was like, I want to, I, of course, I want to talk about nuclear science with him, but I also want to talk about this because it's fascinating to me that if you look at the history of the world and if you look at science, you know, science is a tool to understand the world around us. 
as a tool to test and figure out both history and the current nature of the world. It has always been pushed forward by the church. And then something happened at some point. I'm, I, I want to blame Darwin because of his, his, the way he kind of pushed certain things. I'm not, I'm not making a stance on uh, evolution or anything like, like that right now. I have my feelings, but it, I'm just saying he didn't seem to like God. Um, but you live in a world of science and you get pushback from 14 year old atheists on TikTok. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I would love you to kind of go, th basically go through that. And I'd also like to talk to, about your conversion experience because you talked about that later mm -hmm. and it was so fascinating. And I'd love to pick that apart a little bit okay. uh, in the kindest way possible. Cause I love it. Um, so if you could tell me, kind of what your explanation was to that person that'd be great because like i said it that's the I, I saw several tiktoks from you before and i was like oh nuclear science that's cool and then i saw that one and i was like okay i'm a fan he so, sent it to me i was like we have to talk to this guy i was like yeah let's do it <laughs> so why how is it um you as a scientist how do you square the circle as people think it is squaring a circle of being a Christian within that world. And how does it affect you? So to me, uh, what I love about creation is the, the rationality behind it. Like when I, uh, so I know a little bit of biology, the radiobiology. I know a little, I know that part about it that describes our understanding of radio carcinogeneity, uh, how we, the, what the modern theory is on, on how cancer, can start from radiation doses. Uh, and, but what I'm much more familiar with is, is fundamental engineering of uh, the, the nuclear technology, such as uh, my, my, my personal research is in uh, radiation safety, radiological emergency response and nuclear waste management. That's pretty much where I focus. And lately I've been doing a lot in nuclear forensics. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I, to me, when I look at nature, the fact that once we have mathematics, that it's all something that we can conceive, understand and explain mm. in a way that is perfectly descript of modern science, that we can control it, we can mitigate it and we can uh, predict it mm. because we understand it that well. And that's pretty much all of creation. Remember I said calculus and statistics go from quantum mechanics all the way to cosmology. Mm -hmm. and everything in between uh and what that speaks to me is that where all this came from to me is some some the the, the the creator in my estimation had to have this same cognizance or more mm -hmm. to be able to put this into us and to put this into nature uh just speaks of the most grand designer that you can have. I mean, I can look at a painting and say, wow, that painter had skill. Or I can look at a building and say, wow, that builder had skill. When I look at creation, I can say the creator has some amazing skill. <laughs> uh, uh, and to me, the creator, uh, because this is a creation, the creator then transcends the creation itself, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the painter is not the painting and the builder is not the building. That's just their work. And so they transcend the work. They're greater than the work. They're they're able to do additional or change that work at leisure, at their leisure. They could, they mm -hmm. could improve it or, or modify it as they saw fit, if they saw fit to do so, right? You might think that a painter that made a masterpiece would not want to touch it. You might say other people might say that they would, and that would be just their opinion. 
Um, and so for me as a scientist, it, it, it makes me more, in, in my estimation, it makes me more intimate with what was created. Hmm. To me, it makes me more intimate with my creator to see what was created. Yeah, it's, I it, Romans, that. I was just gonna say, Romans 1 talks about how nature uh, screams God's right. glory. And I, I, I love that. And that's what you've said in science, science terms, because I, um, I, like I've said just recently in this episode, I'm a very artful, uh, philosophical person. And so it's like the way I view God and the way that you view God married is a much clearer and cleaner picture of God than either of us have on our own. Okay. And it, I, I, I find that because you're like the flip side of my coin. And I, I, I find that fascinating and I love it. <laughs> There's a I, idea that um, had been expressed to me that a physicist understands the beauty of a rose much differently than an artist does. And I think that's kind of what Cam might be uh, angling at there, that there are appreciations for nature that are understood through mathematics that, you know, not everybody can access. And um, before we started recording, we were kind of talking about the that there are philosophical aspects to physics. I think that a lot of people view um, nature as a closed system, explainable, discrete, neat. And um, when you get down into like some of the quantum physics, things become less neat. They, um, there are, you know, some, some probability factors that kind of surpass our understanding of one and zero. Things are not either one or zero at the quantum level, as far as my understanding goes. Again, super layman here, but um, I just uh, I, I think that it's very, very interesting that there are constants in nature that if they were bumped off one or the other direction, that stuff like matter couldn't even exist. And this I was trying to get into that a little bit before we started recording, but I think that um, for me, as someone who does come from the I was once an atheist. I do. I am raised in a um, in, in, in a philosophical universe that appreciates science. Science, and so for me, that was something that actually suggested God. That things had to be so finely tuned that if they were not tuned in such a way, we wouldn't even be here to philosophize about these questions. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, there are a large number of constants in the universe to do that. But if I might talk about the quantum mechanics first, uh, mm -hmm. I would say something that's very quite lovely about quantum mechanics is something like, for example, the particle wave duality. It's you, you could say, if I'm looking at a photon and I'm measuring to see if it behaves like a particle, it will behave like a particle. If mm -hmm. I'm measuring to see if it behaves like a wave, it will behave like a wave. The same with an electron or a proton or a hydrogen atom or a buckyball. If I, if I do an experiment that will show its wave properties, I'll see it behaving like a wave. An experiment that should look, like, look for particle properties, I'll see a particle. And so it's kind of like what you're looking for is what you'll find. And mm -hmm. that, that has philosophical implications in and of itself. But take so. it to, the, to, to a more extreme when you're looking at the uncertainty. Uh, you even mentioned before the, the, the many worlds hypothesis, meaning that all of these possibilities are there. But once you make a measurement, you fix it on something. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, when I look at that, quantum mechanics is kind of uh, I, I know that the brain actually works that way in terms of the neurotransmitters. When you're when you're talking about electrons moving uh, or, or even molecules moving, it's uh, quantum mechanics is going to be a huge effect there. And to me, the 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 analogy that I see that that looks like it's it's it's, it's a one to one 
as a Christian is this concept, and I've heard it even debated in Christian circles, the, the, the uh, apparent contradiction between predestination and free will, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have free will? And is there predestination? Do we know what the end of the uh, uh, of the times is going to look like? How how is humanity going to end? How is the world going to end? How is how are these things going to occur when you have free will? And you know you got this butterfly effect concept. But like in quantum mechanics, the 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 analogy would be: yes, you have free will, but once you make a decision, it's made. You could have made a decision <laughs> left, right, or anywhere in between, but once you made it, then it was made, and it wasn't known beforehand what it would be. However, like in quantum mechanics, this uncertainty is what gives rise to very deterministic properties of materials. The quantum mechanical properties give rise to what we had previously thought were deterministic, and they are deterministic on a macro scale. Even though these quantum mechanical uncertainties are taking place, when you average them over Avogadro's number of atoms, that has a very predictive behavior, and it becomes very deterministic. The argument with people being that once you have a large enough people, a large enough group of people, crowd statistics take place and it becomes very predictable. Even though when you're leaving a, a stadium, you know, you might think that you're just flowing the easy way and you might be flowing like water, but then you might decide that you wanna stop and talk to somebody or you saw something that caught your interest. And so you're gonna stop and you're gonna come off. But in whole, the crowd, you're still gonna know what that flow rate's gonna be, even though any one person could make a choice to do something different. Mm -hmm. And unless they're going to affect everybody, which is pretty unlikely, you can pretty much predict how the group is going to work. Mm -hmm. And so I see us in this, what, what often is called in Christian circles, a spiritual topic being very relevant to modern physics. Mm -hmm. And to your point that you were talking about in terms of the constants, my favorite, I actually say this in class, it's even in my book, even uh, the textbook, and that's how we form carbon and not yet, yeah, how we form carbon in stars. There's a very, very small, resonance when you take two helium nuclei and you smash them together they'll stay together for the very smallest fractions of time so it's really not even a bound state it's more just a resonance in other words they're just like spitting around each other does that make sense and but there's yes. a little bit of attraction and they just kind of do this kind of a thing but that small amount of slowing them down is enough in the core of a star for every once in a while another helium nuclei to come in and have what's called for all intents and purposes, a three-body interaction. So that they're all almost coming together at the same time and boom, you make carbon. And without it, there's no carbon. And guess what happens with no carbon? No matter. I think, I, 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 will, I will say that it's, this may be minor or silly, but the, the fact that it's three when it comes to spiritual things, especially Christianity, <laughs> sticks with me. <laughs> I've never made that analogy, but I see it now. Um. <laughs> And one of the things that you said before is that with uh, that the creator can move outside of he's outside of his creation. He's more than his creation. He can change it at will. And that is the kind of a a very scientific look at I, I've had conversations about determinism, about um, predestination and all of this. And people always make this claim that if God knows then thus he has determined it. Mm -hmm. And I find this to not be, for me at least, uh, the most compelling argument because one, I don't think a lot of people who are thinking this way take into consideration that God is not bound by time and thus can see all it, he can see it all. He's He's not bound by it, he's outside of it. He sees it all in one one glance. So I think that that's not, that's not super compelling to me. Um, and then on top of that is, 
if I wanted to make a more philosophical argument, a more um, an analogy of parenthood is, you know, I have children and I have five of them, believe it or not. And I know what's going to happen if I put a piece of candy in front of each of those children. <laughs> and if I tell them, hey, if you sit here and you don't eat this candy and I'll come back and I'll give you two pieces, if you don't eat it, I know which ones will eat it immediately, which ones will take some time and which ones will wait and get that extra candy. And so in my mind, if there is a perfect God who knows me perfectly, regardless of what my free choices are, at the end of the day, his perfect knowledge of me, in, in addition to him being outside of time, that means he knows what I'm going to do because he knows me personally in the way that I think, the way that I act, and the way I react. And so I, I don't see the, maybe this isn't clear to everyone. I've had this conversation before and people are like, I don't get that. But for me, I just don't buy the deterministic case that because he knows, then thus it is determined. Does that make sense? <laughs> Sorry, I just, a little change it there. Um, but what, one of the things that I found interesting on your TikTok recently was someone had asked about your conversion story mm. and in the, in the, the comment that you, you'd shared the word Ouija was yeah. in it. Yeah. And I think wow. the word atheist and Ouija <laughs> was in it. And I was like, well, that's an interesting mixture of things. And, uh, then you also talked about, um, baptism in the Holy spirit and you yes. talked about, uh, the voice of God. And I'm like, I want to hear this story so badly. So if you would be willing to share that, your kind of background background in atheism and that that change, that shift, I would adore hearing it. Okay, yeah, there, it, it's time. So uh, I was raised in a secular home. And uh, from a young boy, I wanted to be a scientist when I grew up. And so uh, I adopted what I had understood to be a scientific worldview, which made, which was that of an atheist. And so I considered myself as a person that did not believe that God existed. What you could see and touch and smell and feel, that was it. That was all that existed. There wasn't anything else. And so I got into a crowd of uh, uh, people that were, um, I, I don't know, second generation hippie children or something like that. <laughs> and uh, uh, some of them were uh, practicing witchcraft. And as an atheist, you know, to me, that was Hollywood, right? It was it was entertainment. It was nothing more than, uh, you know, the, the Hocus Pocus movie or whatever, but just Hollywood. And so uh, I started participating and it was entertaining. Right. If you're, yeah. if you're an atheist and you're practicing and you're watching, you know, witches do their stuff. It's like, OK, whatever, you know, um, yeah. and the boards, those actually caught me interest because I could interact with those. And, uh, you know, the tarot cards, they get boring pretty fast. But uh, the the Ouija board, unless unless the tarot cards are making you money off of children in parks. Sure. Hey, just personally call me out. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I paid ahead. my rent one summer reading tarot cards in Piedmont park, which is, you know, not the most ethical way to pay your rent, but you know, Hey, <laughs> so, go, Sorry, go ahead. please go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's what it was. That's what it was. Um, and uh my experience with it was that it would do some very impressive things it would uh like if somebody came in and they weren't a believer it would uh it would start to say things about them that as far as we could tell nobody with touching the board should have known and it would completely shock the person that heard it because they would say there's no way any <laughs> of you could have known those things 
and it would do things about uh, yourself as well, uh, telling you things. And uh, and they were very impressive, right? Like I said, it had a, a very intrinsic entertainment value when you when you really got into it. So I started to study it, and I found that in the Middle Ages, the witches of the Middle Ages, they didn't have like these little letters. It would be they would make a planchette which had two little sliders and a pencil, and it would just spell out words. It would be hmm. like automatic writing. And uh, and so I actually had made those, and it worked just fine. Uh, well, I was convinced that what it was, it was just my subconscious making a move. I just didn't know that my hands were moving it, right? And, and it was just your subconscious, and that's why it could do impressive things because the subconscious was impressive. Right. It could tell you these things that nobody could figure out because your subconscious somehow figured it out and you didn't realize mm -hmm. that you figured it out. Right. Uh, or whatever. Uh, and so I started to get bored with it because I started to realize that it had a, a pattern that to me was rather pernicious. And so it became kind of boring because it was uh, rather insidious. And some of the things it was saying is like, you know, I don't think I like that. I don't want to be like that. That's not me. And so uh I was saying, you know, I think I'm done with this. This is a joke. You're not real. You say you're this, this, this spirit, this powerful being. You're not, right? You're my subconscious. That's it. And I said, well, I can prove it. I'm like, please. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> my subconscious, I would love to see what my subconscious can do to prove this. Please. And I said, well, what would you like me to do? And I said, turn the lights on and off. And I said, okay. I'm like, they didn't go on and off, right? I'm like, well, are you going to do it? They said, yeah, I will. I will. I can do whatever you want me to do. I'll do all kinds of things. I said, right there, <laughs> turn the lights on and off. And it started interacting with me like this about the things that it could do and all these the different kinds of things that it could impress me with. And I was just getting tired of it, right? I was like, yeah, this is exactly what my subconscious would do because it can't do that, right? <laughs> and then they started going on and off. And, and I just panicked, right? <laughs> stood up. I was about right before I screamed. They came on and they stayed on and i was alone in my friend's room and the light switch was right behind me so there was nobody there and i ran out of the room and i ran up to my friend i said johnny the lights in your room are going on and off and on and off and he said calm down rob they're, they're fluorescent lights they flicker and i said no they're going on and off and on and off and he's like dude chill <laughs> they're just <laughs> lights right um and so it did some other things as well but that was the one that uh, that was the, the real trigger for me, right. That mm -hmm. when, when that had happened. And so as a result, I continued to try to rationalize and to, to, to try to interact for some period of time. I, I wanted to, you know, for a minute, I said, well, there must've been a mouse in the wall, you know, scratching itself right up against the wire right then. It just happened to be timed, right. Or something like that. Right. You know, and I was trying to rationalize these things. And there were a number mm -hmm. of other things that, that were not quite as scary as that, that occurred. And it took about six months to a year afterwards where I was able to articulate what it was that was bugging me about the Ouija board. And what it was that was bugging me is what I realized is that it had this consistent pattern, at least with me, that it would tell you all of these very impressive things like about people that you don't know. And they would verify it uh, when they would come in or with somebody you would just meet uh, uh, or say things about the person across the table uh, that you shouldn't have known. But then it would say these kinds of things until somebody, including yourself, eventually started to believe everything it said. And it's like right when you hit that line, everything after that was the nasty stuff. It was the stuff like, oh, you, you're, you're a super person. Uh, you, you, you're a, it would feed into your vanity. That's what it was. So it would, it, would, it would sound good, but it would just feed into your vanity about how you're better than everybody else, uh, how you're supposed to be some amazing, important person, how you're 
whatever it was for you is what it would tell you. And it was like, and that was at the time I didn't, I couldn't articulate it, but it didn't sit right. Mm -hmm. And, and so at that point I came to the conclusion that thing's evil. <laughs> that's just <laughs> wrong to do that to people, to tell them things like that. That's going to, to, to build them up, to, to see themselves as being better than other people. And so what ended up happening, and this comes into the, uh, the baptism, the Holy ghost. I actually, I did, I'd never met another Christian at that point. Mm -hmm. I had not. I was living in Salt Lake City. I knew a number of Mormons, but I never talked to them about it um, uh, because I had rejected Mormonism at a young age. And uh, so I just sat down and I read the Bible. I had to read it twice. <laughs> when you're on your own and you're an atheist, you don't get it the first time. Yeah, <laughs> if someone's, I can relate to that. If, if someone's not going to explain it to you, it's like, what in the world did he have to <laughs> die on the cross? What's that got to do with anything? Why didn't he just, you know, if he's God, just poof, right? <laughs> What's right. going to the cross for? That made no sense to me. Um, but after I'd read it the second time, it's like, oh, okay, this is starting to make sense. And I was actually able to understand it to the point where I actually started to teach it to my friends. I was like, yeah, I believe this. And there was this one friend, uh, I was up and I was preaching to him and preaching to other people, wanting to, uh, to, to share this new knowledge that I had. It was pretty exciting to me. And he went to bed and I went upstairs and started praying. And I was praying for some period of time. I'm saying, Lord, I know you hear me because I pray to the God that uh, that knows everything. And that's why I know I'm not praying to this wall. It's you that I'm praying to. And I was praying like that for some period of time until there came a moment where I knew that his ear was right at my mouth. And I said, Lord, with all my mind and soul, I want to do your absolute will to the best of my ability. And I meant it. And then the spirit of truth was right in front of me and it came inside of me and it filled me. And he spoke to me audibly and he said, Rob, if any man will, with all his mind and soul, want to do the absolute will of the Lord to the best of his ability, then he's doing it. I just went, whoa. I remember looking at my hand and the spirit was even in my pinky. I was like, I just got filled with this spirit. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I knew that it was the spirit of truth. I didn't know what the spirit of truth was, but I knew when it was in front of me that that's what it was. It's like a, a good analogy would be like in a dream, you just know something's true, like, you see something and it came from somewhere. You don't have any history, but you just know because it's your dream. That's what it was. It was that same kind of knowing that when that spirit was in front of me, I just knew that it was the spirit of truth. I didn't hear anything. It was just like, that's the spirit of truth. <laughs> and then it came inside me and it filled me. And then I just opened up the Bible. It was like to John 14 through 16. I realized I just got baptized in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, a couple other times he spoke to me as well, trying to straighten me out of some silliness that I got myself into, but, uh, that's how I, that's how I got baptized in the Holy ghost. So I'm in it for life. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm there for the long haul. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and it's, 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 it was fascinating for me to hear you say that you heard his voice audibly Yeah, because I, I haven't personally, um, in the way of actual auditory, but the way I describe it is I have heard God speak to me. I call it the inaudible, but inexpress in, What's the word I use? I don't know why I'm flipping it. The inaudible but unmistakable voice of God. Hmm. Where So I'll, I'll give you a, a for instance. Um, when I met my wife, she was not really in the, the, the Christian way. So she was she was into things like tarot cards and stuff like that. And me being a good Christian boy from from essentially birth, I love the way you say that. A good Christian what? boy. Yeah, <laughs> Go ahead. from from birth. I mean, don't let the don't let the the arm full of tattoos confuse you. I have been a Christian since I was. I have a, a a degree in biblical studies. Like this has been my my entire life. This is what I care about the most. What I'm most passionate about. 
Um, but when I met my wife, she was not really on that same path as me. And it freaked me out. We went on one date and I was, I was like, God, I really like this girl. I feel something very special and important about her. But if this stuff is not acceptable to you, we won't go on a second date. We won't continue. And I'm working at the Apple store at this point. And I'm having this stress-filled moment of worry about her, about different things like that. And I suddenly have this peace, this overwhelming peace that covers my entire body. Like you said, I saw the, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit in my pinky. Like my whole body felt it. Sudden peace. And I, I felt and heard, not audibly, but in my mind, don't worry. I'll take care of her. I've got this. Cool. And I said, wow, that's really cool. No one's going to believe me. My mom didn't believe me. My dad didn't believe me. Several people didn't. You know, the, the verse about um, don't be unequally yoked came mm -hmm. up a lot of times. Um, and so I, I prayed about this. I made some mistakes in our early relationship. You know, everything wasn't perfect. Um, but uh, we, we got closer to being married. And we decided to get married on a Thursday on a Sunday morning. So we got, we decided we were going to get married real quick. And so my mom didn't know this. She was at church worried about this heathen that I was dating. <laughs> and um, she's praying. Sometimes we date heathens. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's praying. And uh, she doesn't know that we're going to get married on Thursday. That's something that's being decided as she's in church. And so... Um, we move along with our day. She she feels like she gets a voice uh, a word from the Lord, and she talks to the um, youth pastor and tells him about it. And she doesn't think this means much of anything in that moment. She's invited to the wedding a couple of hours or the next day. She gets to the wedding. We're getting married, and um, she's freaking out still. Because I'm wow. marrying a heathen, right? <laughs> um, which you're not also, a heathen, honey. Also, between being invited to the wedding and being at the wedding is a matter of hours. I think I'd be yeah. breaking out too. Yeah, a matter yeah. of days. But yeah. <laughs> matter of um, days. Uh, so we get to the wedding, and we we do we did it at the the courthouse, and um, it happens. And then she shows me her phone, and she was like, "I was really worried about this, but." You know, God gave me a word, and um, I texted the youth pastor to to tell him what was going on. And uh, I, I read these texts, and they say um, Jeff texted my mom and said, uh, "What was it that God told you on Sunday?" And it said, and it was, "Don't worry, I'll take care of him. I've got this confirmation." This is the same thing told to a different person, same vernacular. Amazing, right? And we get married. We have a very rough couple of months. Like it, it got to the point we had a miscarriage. We had some some really sad things happen, mm. and it was looking like it was going to end just as quickly as it began. Mm. And I had been at my my parents' house crying, drinking rum when I shouldn't have drank that much rum. No one should have drank as much rum as no I did at that point in my rum. life. Uh, I just really liked rum, um, but. <laughs> oh, but uh, so I, you know, I was praying about it and then I hadn't gone to church on a Sunday morning in weeks. I was just depressed. I hadn't done anything. 
I get to church, I think it was uh, a Sunday in January, and I'm praying. A lady walks up to me that is that I've known for my whole life. We were never close. She hasn't talked to my mom about things that are going on. I'm on the front row, and it's like praise and worship, but I'm not. I'm sitting, and I'm praying. And um, she sits down next to me. She puts her hand on my back, and she says, um, Cam, I don't know why I'm telling you this. But God told me to tell you, don't worry. He's going to take care of her. He's got this. And I was like, what? And I'm like, this is this is bizarre. This is this is the third time. This is like the most confirmation anyone would ever need. It's like three witnesses, you know what I mean? Like your fleece. Right. And so I, I go to bed that night and I'm like, God, if you're going to do something, do something. My wife texts me the next morning. And she asked me, do you believe that God still talks to people in dreams? I said, yeah, I do. I do believe that. And uh, she goes, well, last night I had a dream that I was in this all-white room, and I just heard a voice that said, give him another chance. And that was all that I dreamed. And she said, I, I think we need to fix what's broken, and I think we need to move back in together, and we need to, to fix this, move on. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never told this story to my audience. So you're getting a, this is a first. Um, so we get, we get back together. We move into an apartment together. We struggle. We've always had some financial struggles. It's just the way of life for us. Um, but eight years and five children later, God is using us. God is uh, challenging me daily. He has, he is. Uh, using this show in ways that I didn't expect. I've, we've had a couple people say, hey, I would like to know more about Jesus because of the, the conversations you've had. This show that, was about politics at first. <laughs> it was about politics. And I said as many dirty words as as, as could be said. Um, <laughs> but it just goes to show. I you, you don't have to believe me that this happened. I know that you guys do. But the audience, you don't have to believe me that this happened. But you cannot strip that away from me. You cannot strip that experience away from me. You cannot ex ex strip away what I call, like I said earlier, the inaudible but unmistakable voice of God. So I, uh, I agree with you, I, Robert. <laughs> I've been thinking about miracles a lot lately, especially in terms of like our understanding of the natural universe. Because um, miracles are something that a lot of people who are atheistic point at and say, well, this isn't a possibility. How can five loaves of bread become 5,000 loaves of bread? How can a virgin give birth? How can a man be raised from the dead? And there's this assumption that goes along with miracles that says um, there's a regular regularity to nature based on our experience of nature. And therefore these things are outside of our experience and therefore impossible. But our understanding is so limited, you know, and it doesn't um, account for things like quantum mechanics. Like my experience does not account for the things I am told about quantum mechanics. And uh, I, I do think that God works in these margins that we don't, you know, conceptualize necessarily, but aren't supernatural they're they're every bit as natural as anything else it's just that we don't have a way of perceiving them and that's fine yeah. i mean like my brain is made out of flesh and blood 
like how much of the universe can I really perceive with a brain that's made out of flesh and blood, you know? Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been reading, um, surprised by hope by NT Wright lately. See, oh, I thought that CS Lewis has a similarly titled book. I thought Surpri that was his is surprised Lewis, by joy, surprised by joy, um, but this is surprised by hope. And he's talking, he's been talking about the resurrection and about how the Pharisees believed in the general re resurrection of people at the end and the Sadducees didn't and that there was no other resurrection in the pagan world outside of Judaism at that point. And he's talking about all these different um, aspects of that. Mm -hmm. And as I'm reading this and I'm reading about how the Pharisees had an issue with the idea that a single person in the middle of history would be resurrected before everyone else was unthinkable to them. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about science and history. And I was struck with this, this thought uh, last night as I was reading it, which was that with science and with the way we understand the world, we are bound by history. We are not looking at the future. We aren't looking at the new. And so when it comes to miracles, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, when it comes to all of these things, we are functioning out of an outdated understanding in a world built by a God who, like Robert said, can change anything at his whim. And I just, I, I just wanted to mention that. I find that, I find that fascinating. I don't, I don't know if that resonates with anyone else, Robert, but I find it fascinating. I, I do want to, and I, I already know, think I know the answer to the question, but I do want to ask you, do you ever, um, because you do work in scientific fields, have moments where you say, okay, I have to think of this as a scientist and other moments where you say, okay, I can think of this as a Christian. Do you ever have this separation of the two or do they ride in tandem with you? I think in Christianity, they're mated quite well. Okay. For me, uh, I think you, you could, you could uh, uh, see this quite easily as well. For me, uh, Jesus said in the book of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To me, Jesus is truth, right? When yes. when uh, uh, Pontius Pilate looked at him in the face and says, what is truth? He didn't realize that truth was staring him in the face. Yes. He couldn't see it if it was right in his face. Um, and as a Christian, to me, truth is objective. Mm -hmm. And by that statement, that means that it doesn't matter what I say. doesn't matter if I exist. Truth is still going to be the truth. doesn't matter what my perspective is or your perspective or anybody's perspective or whether anybody exists, the truth transcends everything. Doesn't matter if the universe exists. Doesn't matter if the universe did or didn't ever exist. The truth would still be mm -hmm. there. It has no beginning, it has no end. And it would be the only thing that would exist outside of this universe in an absolute way. <clears throat> and so in a literal sense, truth is God. And so truth is the maker of reality as we know it. And so if I'm gonna study reality, I think I'm going to be in a big problem. I'm going to have a big problem as a scientist if I divorce myself from truth. Mm -hmm. And if I think that my truth is the only truth that matters, then I'm going to be missing a lot of truth as a scientist. Mm -hmm. That's one of those things that I've said a number of times because people like to bring the, they, they, they seem to think that truth coming from a, um, a source that they don't approve of stops being truth that it's poisoned by the person that it comes from and so one of the sayings that i use a fair amount is all truth is god's truth regardless of where truth comes from like you said i remember when i read uh 
that verse with new eyes the first time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Mm. Like he is the truth. He is the word. He is the perfect image of our perfect God. And creation screams of his presence, his goodness, and his creativity and his math skills, even though I'll <laughs> never understand them. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's... It, <laughs> If you if if I take this cup and take a drink of it, my brain through the the neural network, the machine learning, it has equivalently just solved a second order partial differential equation with boundary conditions. If I'm going to program a robot to do that, that's what that robot has to do, and you mm -hmm. do it with ease, right? And that's not speaking about simple algebra, the kinds of things with rate, right? Being able to to speed up and slow down and make it something and grab something and figure out where to stop. That's what I'm talking about, that's this yeah. calculus and statistics that transcends everything as far as we know it. And you are masterfully built to be able to do that with ease in yep. that brain of yours. Yeah, uh, we're beautifully and wonderfully made. Yeah. C.S. Lewis had said about um, if everything in the universe uh, was an accident and just accidents compounding on top of each other to create the human being, it's as though you spilled a glass of milk on a table and it produced a perfect map of London. Like the idea that that could happen is pretty far-fetched. I mean, sure, probabilistically, there is a instance where that could happen, I suppose, but it's not likely. So <laughs> I always kind of liked, liked that notion of spilling the milk in a perfect map of London appearing. Like, yeah, probably not. <laughs> well, and that's what's so interesting to me is it, when it comes to robotics and science is that, uh, especially robotics, is they're, they're attempting to recreate the human in some sense. And it's hard. And they find out how extremely difficult it is. I was reading something a couple months ago about how they, they, they can crack some movement. They can crack some um, logic, like, you know, maths and, and things like that. Because you can program that in. But one of the biggest obstacles in ro robotics, robotics is trying to make it so that a computer can see and perceive because they can't crack it because the idea of the mind is beyond these uh limited motherboards these little creations Do you mean like see dynamically because like i know that like they have machines that scan like barcodes and, and things of that nature like optically like right, or but... even like surgery robots that can pick up certain materials that it recognizes on a platform and right and but it's it's the, the ability to see and deduce i believe so it's like you know yeah. if you look at something you don't have to have all of the knowledge of what that is to start making assumptions and figuring out what it is whereas right, with a with a robot with an ai at this point at this juncture um in order to do it you have to explicitly program these things in for an instance on TikTok the other day i saw a guy who's trying to do an ai that recognizes this very thing and so he was one of the people said okay so scratch your beard in front of your your camera and see what the ai picks up and so that he he goes okay i don't know what why i would do that and so he turns and he says okay so what is this and he goes and he he does this to his beard and the computer goes choking <laughs> okay. And so he's like, okay, so th there is no, like, if you look at that and you don't know, like, you know that I have a beard, 
because you can see the beard and you know what the, the beard is by the fact that you can look at my head and you know what hair is. Like, there are all of these associations that are made and you know that what I'm doing. And so he had to explicitly tell his AI that he had an itchy beard and that's what it returned with after he explicitly programmed it. So there are absolute limitations. So they can see, but they the, the concept of the mind is so far away and truly seeing as we understand it is has not been broken as of this point. Hmm. That's interesting. I disagree. What was that? I would actually disagree with that. Okay. okay. The machine learning, uh, neural nets, artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that we do understand how the brain works and it's through categories. The way that we interpret uh, visual information, it's the same thing that the automatic cars do is by categorizing everything and saying, you know, if you see a, a, a box, and there are different categories of boxes. If you see the outline of a face, there are different categories of faces. If you see the outline of a street, there are different categories. And by having categories and subcategories and subcategories, you can parse the information and process it in such a way as you can figure out what categories you're in. Now, it mm -hmm. takes an enormous amount of training data. You have to be able to train mm -hmm. it on a large database. And that database is going to drive things like the choking, right? If you don't have, mm -hmm. if it's never seen... Uh, somebody scratching your beard, you're not going to go know what's what how to interpret that. And that's the way that a baby would interface with the world around it using machine learning to categorize everything. And once mm -hmm. all these categories are very well defined, then we can do very, really, really accurate uh, interpretations of the data that's of new data that's fed. And that's how machine learning works is by m mimicking these neural networks, the, the way that the, uh, a neuron has lots of connections with other neurons. That's what we're doing mathematically with multiple layers of nodes that are connecting multiple nodes. And then the way that they all connect from a given test item, after you run it through this neural net, that gives you a little bit of information. But if you tell it what this is and you tell it what enough of these uh, uh, pieces of information that you're getting, then you can really build up uh, uh, an AI that can do extremely well predictive uh, uh, behaviors. And that comes from recognizing that the way that the brain is working is what we can simulate in a computer. Now they are extremely limited because it, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, mm -hmm. But the power that we've seen is tremendous in terms of being able to, just the fact that we can do automatic driving is a really good example mm -hmm. of being able to interpret what you can see on the road and be able to figure out, should I slow up, slow down, uh, speed up, turn left, turn right, uh, or, or whatever the case might be based on interpreting that, that, that incident data. Now, being able to have one that can do everything that the brain can do, that's a whole different story. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of how the brain thinks logically, uh, the science says that it's that that's why we call it artificial intelligence, neural networks. This machine learning is exactly that. It's our best understanding of how the brain works in terms of the logical uh, processes. Being able to, to do the same level of computation, yeah, we're way off from that. But uh, being able to simulate the same processes is is why we have such power with machine learning. Well, I, I and I will say I did read this months ago, so they may have broken through some of the, <laughs> the, the pieces between that. But my uh, I do I do find it just fascinating that no matter what, uh, there's a an uphill battle to try to recreate humanity and to recreate most anything. And like, I just don't want them to make fake meat. I'm not interested in that. That's one thing I'm not interested in. Like, <laughs> well, let's, let's just not do that. <laughs> 
or the robot dogs because like we had a whole uh book about these robot dogs we know where this leads and i just don't like the direction that boston dynamics is taking with this <laughs> like i read fahrenheit 451 this is not cool guys like, <laughs> like the um, military has them right 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 <laughs> they're not going to use them for anything good like, <laughs> yeah, i don't we, like i don't Terminator. like anything i right i i don't i always have i have this rule about pets that i won't have a pet that could kick my ass so these robot dogs like they show people trying to like kick them over and they're like really specially designed not to be able to be kicked over so not that I, I'm like kicking dogs or anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> I haven't read. I haven't read Dune, and I haven't wa watched all the way through yet. But I have looked into some things, and I do. Uh, just basic thing. I do find it very interesting that there was a robot uprising thousands of years ago in the Dune world, and part of the reason humans developed the way they did is because they outlawed all thinking machines. Hmm. So that's fascinating to me. It's that an is, interesting yeah. layer of of science fiction. Yeah. Um, so Robert, thank you so much for coming onto our show. I have enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. I've got to talk about the thing I'm most, most passionate about. It's the perfect episode. Um, one of the things that we do on every episode is, um, most people, I, I'm sure you've noticed there's a lot of despair in the world right now. There's a lot of people that are in very dark places. There are a lot of people who have had family members lose businesses, jobs, or other family members. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. there's a, a lot of um, darkness and lack of hope for people. And so we're a show of hope. And so one of the things we like to ask our guests when they come on is, and this is kind of putting you on the spot, so I'm sorry, um, but <laughs> what is something right now, and it, it doesn't have to be, it can be personal, it can be global, it can be scientific, whatever floats your boat. What right now gives you the hope and the motivation to continue on and to, to blaze through into the future? Uh, the new fission battery technology that's coming out, that's kind of scary impressive. Uh, there are these uh, micro reactors that uh, you would be able to put in a transportainer that would give you, say, on the order of, say, 10 megawatt output for a decade. And uh, it's, it looks like the military is going to fund them because they want to, if they could, then they don't need oil anymore, right? You, they could electrify mm -hmm. their fleet. And if they electrified their, their fleet, their supply chain would go away. All they need is just water and food, right? Hmm. Uh, they don't need, and because that's where most of the casualties and damage was in the Middle East was the supply chain, getting all that oil and gasoline up there to operate everything. But if they had these fission batteries, you put it in a bunker, this thing's powering batteries. You just come back and, and swap out batteries and you've got power ad infinitum with these fission batteries. And the reason why that's exciting is because the military has made it clear that if they're going to be successful in the future, Congress is going to need to fund it. And so guess what? Uh, the national laboratories are putting forth an effort to develop these. And once the military has them, it's not long until we will. And once yeah. these fission batteries are out, we don't need gas stations all across the interstate. We don't need because that's a very concentrated form of energy that you can just go up and get this huge concentration of energy and keep going all the way across the country. If we were mm -hmm. going to have electric vehicles to do that, we're going to need new grid infrastructure to supply a lot of electricity to, <clears throat> to, to make these batteries. But if we have these little portable fission batteries, you can have electricity anywhere, anytime. As started, and especially up north, Alaska would be desperate for them. 
because you can make these modular, you can, you can scale them up and they are what appears to be the fastest route to completely electrifying the transportation sector. The only thing that's left that wouldn't be done necessarily would be jet fuel, mm -hmm. because once you've got the transportation sector, all of the cars off of gasoline, now all you need is oil for a lubricant and making plastics, right? And we could supply all of that just locally. We don't need to go globally if that's all that we're using our oil for. It's mm -hmm. just for making products, right? It's just, it yeah. just goes to a, a, almost a standstill. And then, the, then that stuff just goes into manufacturing instead of burning it for transportation and heat. And so that looks like is going to be the the breaking point where we're going to maybe be able to make a, a, a vast transition to electric uh, electrifying the transportation sector. And if that occurs, I would assume that it's going to be uh, not difficult to electrify the power sector as well. So that we're I mean, electrify, I mean, take us off of fossil fuels. So we're not burning yeah. fossil fuels for heat. Again, those fossil fuels go for manufacturing, for making uh, consumer products. And so I think that's uh, a big hope for nuclear science and technology to be able to make that transition. But it does require we do a lot of research. Uh, the National mm -hmm. Labs are doing that now. On a, just a personal note, I want to say that um, you've actually dispelled and disabused me of a lot of my own personal fears toward um, just this entire topic, especially the idea of radiation. It's something that I did have a pervasive fear about, and um, you've alleviated me quite a bit of that. And so on a personal note, thank you for doing that. I really appreciated you giving us your time today for that. My pleasure. I'm here to serve. Thank you. <laughs> you've done well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you right. for not only you know giving us knowledge about nuclear, but also going into your personal life and going into uh, your uh, Christianity, your religion, uh, all of that. That's wonderful. No, a lot of people say that you shouldn't talk politics or religion. And I, I, I want to talk religion way more than a lot of people are comfortable with. So I appreciate <laughs> you. Um, uh, if people want to, what I'll do is I will tell people where to find you. Um, and I'll, I'll take you off during the boring stuff. When we talk, if you want to hang out and talk to us some more, feel free to do so. If not, don't. Um, but, uh, if you want to find, uh, Dr. Hayes, he has a TikTok, which all you have to do is type in nuclear science lover and you're going to find him. Very simple, very good branding. I mean, could it be more clear? Um, I also have in the notes um, his, uh, his profile from uh, North Carolina State University where it has all of the all the different things that he's writing and he's working on. So if you want to see his technical work, that's where to go. It's down in the down in the description. Is there anything else you'd like to to say to our audience or point them to before before you go? Please remember Jesus loves you. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank and, you. And uh, we will see you in a minute. And with that, dear audience, now it's time for the boring stuff. Actually, I think it's exciting, but um, <laughs> you know. So let's talk about what's coming up soon so this this next month is surprisingly filled with doctors we started with dr hayes we're going to talk to dr rebecca simon next week who is a pirate historian i've never Neat. heard of that really wanted to talk to someone who is a historian of pirates uh, she has a phd in it and then uh our good friend kate cheryl from burials and beyond is coming back and she's going to talk about gothic literature and the gothic spiritualism that went on during that time then after that probably i mean all of our episodes are pretty cool. 
but I have never talked to someone who's been bitten by a shark and I've wanted to my whole life. And so at the end of this month, we're talking to Shannon Ainsley, who is a surfer who was attacked by two great white sharks at the same time and then was later, uh, from what I understand, hunted by orca in some way. And so now he just surfs in the Arctic. It's fascinating. Can't wait to talk to him about that. And then we get into the Christmas stuff, dude. First episode of December, we're having Brad Jerzak on. And we're going to talk about Mary. We're going to talk about the incarnation. And we're going to talk about how Christianity, despite what everyone's told you, is a women's rights movement. It, uh -huh. it, it was good for women uh -huh. before anyone else. So it might be controversial, but we're going to have trying. fun to do this episode since we've started. Guys, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> so beyond that, we are currently in our first week of the John Bible study. We're walking through John 21 days, and we're meeting every week to talk about the previous seven chapters. Our first Zoom meeting is tomorrow night. So mm -hmm. if you want to join us, it's not too late. Seven chapters isn't too much. You could do that in one sitting, and you can join us tomorrow night. Just tweet at me message me and I will give you the discord info and throw you into the Twitter group chat if that's what you prefer. Uh, so join us on that. Beyond that, um, again, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Ryan. Um, get some coffee, rymcoffee.com, promo code the mad ones. Get some beef jerky, righteousfelon.com, uh, promo code mad ones. We're on, if you're not, if you're listening to us, watch us on youtube.com slash the mad ones. We're also on Rockfin. We're on Odyssey. You can find us by typing our name easy enough. Buy a shirt. Buy a shirt. I make, I think they're pretty good. Buy a shirt. If you don't want a shirt, in the next couple of days, I will be, uh, I'm still working out some details, but I will be posting a link for coffee mugs. I believe that I have three different versions right now. Um, and so, or six different versions, two different uh, designs. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, beyond that, find me on Twitter at Cam Harless, Jessica at Soup Canarchist. And uh, if you want to listen, wearethemadones.com uh, store. I said buy a shirt, and I didn't tell you where. Wearethemadones.com slash store. And so that's it. Got anything for them? No. No. Just my usual. Okay. <laughs> so as always, you have the chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up. Mm -hmm.